Coming up, the Dodgers are rising and the Yankees are free-falling as those two headline the latest and greatest in Major League Baseball. In the NHL, San Jose winger Patrick Marlowe is about to hit a milestone that will have no rival in the over 100-year history of the league. Julian Edelman, the longtime Patriot, decides to call their career in New England, is the next stop Canton in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Some key injuries, a retirement, a potential verdict, and the possible aftermath of the Derek Chauvin case in Minneapolis is front and center as there is a ton to unpack in the NBA. I'll get into all of it and then some, but first, this message. Hey everybody, Jay Reels here to share a friendly reminder. If this is your first time getting an opportunity to listen to what it is that I have to say about what's going on in the world of sports, welcome aboard. Or if you've been a long-time listener, not only do I welcome you back, but I want to advise you all to please subscribe, rate, and review the J Reels podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. Of course, this pod is on all platforms. On Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, Player FM, even Amazon Music. I not only host this endeavor, but I independently produce, edit, and write what you read and listen to, so your participation is vital to not only support the podcast, but increase the visibility fuel the growth and expansion of this platform to those who aren't familiar with it. You could also share the show or a particular episode by posting on social media as well. The purpose of this is quite simple, people, to generate interest to those who aren't aware or know of this podcast, especially the former or current athlete, the broadcaster, blogger, sports writer, studio host, etc., as I want them to share their experience on the field, the court, the press box, broadcast booth, or in the studio with me, So then I could flip that to you guys and gals to deliver top-notch, fast-paced, entertaining, informative, incredible sports talk unlike any other for everyone to listen and enjoy and to keep coming back for more on a week-in, week-out basis. You could also go to my website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. I appreciate you all for your support. Thank you very much for listening and believing in me. I hope you come back for more as your trusted source on everything that's happening in the world of sports. So with that said, the J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the j Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. What? is happening my good people greetings how are you how's it going how's everybody doing out there what is the latest and greatest hope everybody's doing well feeling fantastic once again another monday that much more closer to the month of may and i thank you for stopping by to listen digest and dissect my thoughts opinions and analysis on all that's happening throughout the sports landscape with lots to dig into as this is the j reels podcast with your host j reels for my first timers as always welcome aboard and for those who have been banging with me for now 190 episodes, I welcome you guys back. It's a Monday, April the 19th in the year of our Lord, 2021. The J Reels What's the Deal segment, what to expect on this podcast is as follows. Julian Edelman, one of the all-time great New England Patriots, goes off into the sunset as he retires after 12 years in Foxborough. Next stop, the Pro Football Hall of Fame. But I'll tell you why he should not be enshrined in Canton, and I have a very good comparison 
and explain why there are other receivers that will go well above and beyond before him despite the fact that he's had a phenomenal career playing for Bill Belichick and the New England Patriots. Also, in the NHL, a record that many people thought would stand forever will actually be broken tonight in Las Vegas as longtime San Jose Sharks winger Patrick Marlowe will be at the NHL mountaintop for all-time games played in the 100 years plus history of the league. A very special achievement. I'll talk about that. As well as the Canucks are finally back after a three-week shutdown, winning in their first game since March 24th last night. In the NBA, lots to get into here as KD, Jamal Murray, and Donovan Mitchell suffered some major injuries in the past few days, some more serious than others. So what kind of impact will that have as we make the turn toward the home stretch of the NBA season? Plus the potential after effects of a verdict in Minneapolis as the Derek Chauvin case is coming down to the wire. What this may mean, not just for the NBA or sports, but for the country on a whole. That's right. I'm going to delve into this just a little bit. But the after effects of this could be immeasurable. Of course, I'll get into this from a sports angle, but also with a little bit of a side dish when it comes to the country as a whole. That, as well as my hero and zero of the week. First up, we know that a Major League Baseball season is not played in 15 or 16 games. We know it's 162. We know that it's a marathon, not a sprint. And we understand that from April 1st through the end of September... It all boils down to, yeah, it could be a precious few games in a Major League Baseball season, but for the fans in Southern California and the fans in the South Bronx, you talk about two polar opposites when it comes to these first two weeks of the baseball season. And the reason why I'm going to start here is because these are the two teams that a lot of people thought would square off in a World Series come late October, including yours truly. Because when we looked at it a couple of weeks back, how the LA Dodgers were going to look to repeat after a 60-game season in which they won a World Series, but were coming into this season knowing that they had that much more to prove. They felt as if the World Series, as legitimate as it was last year, they want to make sure that over the course of a long season, of a regular season, and into October, through all the playoff rounds of the Division Series, the Championship Series, and the World Series, that they could show and prove once and for all that We 1,000% legitimately earned this. And on the flip side of that would be the New York Yankees as they were, in my estimation, by far the best team in the American League going into this year. We know about their history over the last few years, how they can't hit in October and they only had the one big starting pitcher in Garrett Cole. And we know about their bullpen, which has been very formidable in the regular season, but seems to implode come playoff time. Well, right now, you have a Yankee team that's not just wounded, but they are battered, beaten, and bruised right about now to the tune of a 5-10 and 10 record after 15 games, which is the worst start by a Yankee team since 1997. So when you look at both sides of the coin here, where one is shining bright in an L.A. Dodger team that's 13-3 and three, coming off of the heels of a huge series and emotional series victory over the San Diego Padres, And then when you look at the other side of the coin, it is as dusty, rusty, and dirty for a team that is limping after a day off out of the stadium at 161st and River Avenue on the heels of a sweep by the Tampa Bay Rays who have their number over the last year plus and searching for answers, searching for a bunch of different things as they try to get their season on track. But with the Dodgers, 
a lot of people thought going into this season with bringing in a guy like Trevor Bauer with a team that has the highest payroll in baseball, a National League that has some very competitive teams on paper going in. But as we see throughout the first two weeks, and again, like I said, that's not to say that 16 games mean a season. This is not the NFL. But the Dodgers are flying and riding high right now, and you would have to think that although we cannot just jump to conclusions or break out the blue and white pom-poms of the LA Dodger colors, but you have to like what you see so far as they have just steamrolled here through these first couple of weeks. And as indicative over the weekend where they won two out of three games in San Diego, where the first two games were as hotly contested, and not only that, pretty much came right down to the very last out. You also had a couple of bench-clearing brawls, which didn't amount to anything. I can't say they were even brawls, but the benches are cleared. And you had a situation where it looked like the rivalry was going to hit an early peak just a couple of games into the season where you had to hit batsman in the first game. And then on Saturday night, Clayton Kershaw going at it with one of the Padre batters. And it has the early makings of what could be 19 matchups, or now 16 after this weekend, including four starting Thursday in LA for a long four-game series where these two rivals will match up again. And with the way the games ended there on Friday night, back and forth between both teams in those final couple of frames until the Dodgers broke it open in the 11th inning as they won 11-6, with the go-ahead run at the plate and pretty much the winning run where Mookie Betts had a diving, sprawling catch in the outfield which saved two runs because there was runners on second and third and if the ball would have went to the wall, who knows, maybe would have had an inside-the-park home run as a walk-off. And then yesterday, the Padres did salvage the series by coming back and winning as they were down early against the Dodgers and then they were able to at least have some sort of respect there and knowing that at home, they didn't get swept and were able to save some face heading into the series that's going to take place three days from now in another matchup with the LA Dodgers. And this is without Cody Bellinger, who is on the shelf for an indefinite amount of time with a hairline fracture in his leg. There is no timetable as to when he's going to come back. It's not a day-to-day thing as stated by manager Dave Roberts, but you figure that Bellinger is going to be out of the lineup for quite some time until he's able to be 100% healthy and could be back in the fold here as the Dodgers continue to pretty much steamroll. And you have to be impressed by what they've done here so far. It's not as if this team coming into the season was going to lay down or at least put their feet up knowing that they finally got the piano off their back, not winning a World Series in 32 years after coming so close in 2017 and the same in 2018. All the missed opportunities in the postseason as they won eight straight division titles, but they finally had that World Series championship and you could tell that this team is hungry for more. This is going to be pretty much a season that the National League is going to be left in their wake if the Dodgers will certainly have a say into what the season's going to mean, not only for them, but for baseball and the rest of the national circuit. If they haven't taken notice yet, they're going to have to start taking notice now. So that's what we have with the Dodgers here early on as they look to be primed and ready for not only a long regular season, 
but to pretty much rub their hands and get themselves ready for an October, which is still six months away. And I'm not sitting here to say, just give the crown to the Dodgers right now. There's no reason to play the rest of this baseball season that is barely three weeks old. But you could get from what you've seen so far that the Dodgers mean business and they're going to pretty much do whatever it takes to get back to where they were last year and that's to the mountaintop of Major League Baseball. Now, as far as the Yankees are concerned, I'm absolutely shocked by their performance here in this early going and a lot of this is all on the offense. The pitching has not been great as we know and we've chronicled that over the last week or so when it comes to Corey Kluber, Jamison Tyon, guys like that. And that's not to say that yesterday's game was a must win. It was April 18th. It's way overrated to think that a team needs a must win in April. But when you have your ace on the mound, the guy that you've paid $324 million over the course of nine years to come in and do the job, to stop the bleeding on a four-game losing streak, to put to rest the dominance that the Tampa Bay Rays have shown and flexed their muscles against the New York Yankees dating back to the end of 2019. For some respectability, for your guy to go in there and to slam the door on a streak that is certainly unraveled to the point where the Yankees have the worst record in the American League. And although he pitched well yesterday, didn't walk a batter, struck out 10, But for him to leave that game in the seventh inning down 3-2, giving up an RBI single to a guy that was batting 146 is inexcusable. And I'm not putting this all on the shoulders of Garrett Cole, but as brilliant as he was yesterday, in the one key moment of the game, he wasn't able to get the big out. And not to say that they're not going to have a big season or Cole's not going to have a big season on the mound. He's already shown his dominance so far. But we all know that this revolves around the Yankee offense. And just listen to some of these numbers here. Over the weekend, they had 11 hits throughout the three games. We know about their 5-10 and start. They're batting 210 as a team, which is one point higher than the Cleveland Indians. They're striking out left and right, which is no surprise. We know this team is right-hand dominant, as we've said time after time after time. And then Sanchez is hurt, so he's out of the lineup. But you have... Guys like DJ LeMahieu, who has been okay, but hasn't been the way he's performed over the first two years of his Yankee tenure. We know about the exploits of Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton. Even Gleyber Torres is off to a very slow start, which is one RBI. You go on down this lineup, and there isn't a guy that is scaring you right about now, despite the fact that this lineup could wake up at any moment. I mean, think about this. You have Aaron Hicks. He's your third place hitter in the lineup which is a joke because he should not be batting third and I understand they want to have a little bit of balance in the lineup with the lefty righty but he's not the guy to be batting third and it's certainly showing here early on so the Yankees in their slumber they have a day off today before the Braves come in and you would only hope that they take this day off to get away from baseball to regroup and get themselves back on the beam of course as a longtime Yankee hater I hope that's not the case but again It's April 19th. You think this team's just going to wilt away and not be heard of from the rest of the year? Hence at the very top, Marathon. A million games to go. And in a division where there is not really any main competition. You want to say the Rays? Well, the Rays came into this series against the Yankees. They were 5-8. and So they weren't lighting the world on fire. 
The Red Sox have cooled off a little bit after their hot start, but do, do you expect them to continue to carry on with their 9-3 and start, now they're 10-6, and and to play well above 500 baseball throughout the course of the rest of the season? Forget about the Orioles. We know the Blue Jays will be pesky, but are they ready to take that next step? To me, this is the Yankees' division to lose, and at the end of the day, I think that they're still going to come out on top as evidence go back what is it, 23 years or 24 years when the Yankees started off at 5-10 and 10 and they won 96 games before losing in the division series to the Indians that year. Not to say it's going to be the same fate, but you would think history is going to tell you and with the way the division is that the Yankees are going to bounce back here. But there is absolutely no excuse for the way they've played so far. And it's not as if they've had a bunch of games delayed or postponed a la the Mets where... There hasn't been any continuity or any consistency. They've played pretty much every game. And granted, this team has gotten off to as bad and as slow of a start as you can actually imagine. Or can imagine, especially if you're a Yankee fan. But at the same time, this is a team that we've seen in the regular season just bully through lousy pitching staffs, terrible pitching, and they will... Before you know it, be on top. I wouldn't be surprised that in two weeks' time, they'll be in first place in the division. But you have to look and see what the hell's going on here, and it is not a good picture. Think about this. If the old boss, George Steinbrenner, was around, you think Aaron Boone and Brian Cashman would see the light of day this morning as them being employed as a member of the New York Yankees? I think not. And we could look at this from an organizational standpoint, Knowing that the Yankees and the way George Steinbrenner was, and mind you, he hasn't been around for over 10 years. In fact, it's going to be 11 this summer. And the makeup of this organization is a lot different than what we've seen in years past. And it's not to say that they won't be successful. That's not to say that they can't bounce back and make a run and win a World Series. Absolutely not. But at the same time, you do have to wonder, starting from the owner, not having the bombast, not having the, just the presence that winning, as George used to say, was only second to breathing. And that you embodied not only that as a player or a part of the Yankees, but also as a fan. Where now it just seems you bring in the high-priced ball player or you happen to just follow the analytics as we've seen time after time with these New wave managers and Aaron Boone does fall into that. And Brian Cashman also being tied at the hip with this new philosophy or I should say this recent philosophy because it's not necessarily new. But it makes you think whether or not the Yankees are going to be able to finally have that aura or invincibility that we've seen in years past. We understand the players are a lot different from those 90s and 2000s Yankee teams. But at the same time, the talent is there. And we know what the problems are with this team when it comes to their rotation, the lineup, even the bullpen for that matter. But now it's just a matter of time as to whether or not this could get fixed. We've talked about all the ailments that this team has gone through here, especially in the postseason. But now it's time for them to shape up because I don't think it's going to be a long season. I think they're going to bounce back. But man... Another tough week like this where they have Atlanta coming in for two before going to Cleveland for four. And you got to wonder whether or not there's going to be some players or even managers on the hot seat here because 
if you're a Yankee fan and you've watched this garbage for the last 15 games, this is highly unacceptable. And that's a fact. Slow start, all right, fine. If they were eight and seven or even seven and eight, seven and eight would still make you scratch your head. But if they were eight and seven, nine and six out of the gate, all right. Five and 10? Not good. So I wanted to start there with baseball because I figured those are the two teams that a lot of people are going to look at this year and follow to see if they're going to be on a collision course to meeting up in October. And right now, it is certainly not the case. But there is plenty of baseball that lies ahead. And as we go through it here, as we set the stage for what has taken place, you have teams that are in either COVID protocols or players that have not played here over the last week where the Twins and Angels did not play on Saturday and Sunday due to four Twins players testing positive in the past week. So you wonder how the Twins, who have gotten off to a very slow start, what that may mean for them here in the immediate future. You also have a couple of Astros, key ones at that, out of the lineup in Jose Altuve and Alex Bregman. Also, Jordan Alvarez, who has not Regained his form since he won Rookie of the Year a couple of years back. So those are two things that we're going to take a look at here as we move forward because the Twins, who are looking to win another division title, a lot of people think the Twins are going to make similar noise to what they've done the last two years, but their slow start and now being in the COVID protocol, something to look for here as we march on, as well as the Astros who got off to that hot start and then they've cooled off considerably And granted, when you have two key players out of the lineup like that, of course, it's going to compromise your lineup, but we'll see the after effects of that once they return. And speaking of Astros, you had A.J. Hinch, the former Houston Astro manager, return back to his former team, his former city, as a member of the Detroit Tigers, who went in there and swept the Astros in a three-game series, and it was an emotional return for Hinch. Of course, they did the whole video tribute on the scoreboard, tipped his cap, ducked back into the dugout, didn't want to shed a tear. So it was not only an emotional, but a very victorious return as the Tigers just had their way with the Astros early last week. You also had another no-hitter in baseball just five days after Joe Musgrove of the San Diego Padres achieved the first one in its franchise's history. Carlos Rodon threw the 20th in Chicago White Sox history where he went into the ninth inning with a perfect game and the first out was recorded on a dribbler up the first baseline where the pitcher, I believe, made a great play. It was a stretch at first base. Close, bang, bang. At first was safe, but then they overturned it. He was out. And then the next batter, this is against the Cleveland Indians, the next batter was plunked by Rodone. There went his perfect game, but he was able to get the final two outs to secure the no-no. And Rodon goes into White Sox history as well as baseball history as another no-hitter. And it's weird to think, here we are just two and a half weeks in and already two no-hitters. So will we see two more here over the course of the next two weeks or 20 more for the rest of the year? Or would this be the last one? Obviously, that remains to be seen, but very interesting where you've had history taking place here. Very early in this uh, first month of the season. Speaking of history, you had Shane Bieber, the Cy Young Award winner from the Cleveland Indians, continuing his masterful pitching 
into the 2021 season where he's the first pitcher since 1893 to have his first four starts where he struck out at least 10 batters. Now, we all know what Bieber did in the postseason last year as he spit the bit against the Yankees, but his regular season prowess continues as he looks to tack on to his reigning Cy Young award-winning year of last year, but a tremendous start for him to think. He's got, what, 40-something strikeouts? I believe he has 48, I saw, in the first four games. He had 13 yesterday, so kudos to his torrid start. And as I mentioned earlier, with the Braves coming to town to face the Yankees tomorrow and Wednesday, they may be without Ronald Acuna Jr., who has what looks like an abdominal strain. I'm sure he's being tested as I speak here with MRIs and meeting up with doctors to see what the prognosis is. They had lost Ozzy Albies over the weekend, I believe on Saturday, against the Cubs. So who knows how long he's going to be out. So the Braves coming in here a little bit injured and not only that, limping into the series against the struggling Yankees. So it'll be interesting to see how that two-game series unfolds, whether those players will be in the lineup or not. And other than that, throughout the league, as we take a quick look at the standings, as I mentioned, American League, with where the Red Sox are at as well as the Rays, like I said, they went into the weekend three games on the 500. So with the sweep, they've actually evened their record and are a couple of games behind the Red Sox. The Central is interesting now, where you have the Royals, of all teams, at the top of the AL Central. And again, this is not to get crazy, we're only two weeks into the season, but a lot of people thought the Royals would be much improved. And so far, they're showing that that's the case. We talked about the Twins, and how they've struggled, and who knows what's going to happen with them, as they head to their next series. I believe they play tonight. Uh, We'll look at the Twins real quick. But the Twins, as they look to try to get them see their season on track, yeah, they're going to Oakland, and right now, they may be scheduled to play tomorrow, but we'll have to wait and see. So the Twins, who are scheduled to play tonight, will not. It'll be postponed, and I'm sure made up at a later date. Or if not, they'll have a doubleheader, since the Twins only go to Oakland once a year. Then out west, you have the Seattle Mariners of all teams at the top of the division, but the Oakland A's who started off as bad as you possibly can, getting swept by the Astros in four games to start the year. They were 1-6 to start their season. Well, now they've turned it around to the point where they're 9-7, but still a game behind the Mariners. And the A's, that team that you always want to beat up on, you always want to pick on because of the whole Moneyball theory, and you think that they're going to have a year where they're finally going to fall off and tail off and not be as complete as they have been in the regular season over the years. Well... Here they are, early on after a very sluggish start, they've bounced back nicely to the tune of them being a couple games over 500 and just a game behind Seattle, sandwiched in between are the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. As far as the National League in the East, the Mets, and yes, Jacob DeGrom finally got a break where he left after six innings, losing 3-2 on Saturday in the first game of a doubleheader against the Rockies, but the Mets tacked on two in the top of the seventh, Edwin Diaz came in to slam the door and Jacob DeGrom finally got a victory this year. A well-earned one at that, even though he left trailing. But with what happened the week before against the Marlins and even before that opening day where he lost to the Phillies after leaving up to nothing in the sixth inning. 
Back-to-back 14 strikeout performances. His ERA is 0.47. I mean, what more can you say about the guy? And then you have the Phillies, Marlins, Braves, Nationals to round out the rest. And the Marlins have actually bounced back too. They were 1-6 prior to that Saturday game against the Mets where Jacob DeGrom lost. And since then, they've actually played a lot better and have gotten themselves in a decent position here and not falling flat on their faces as a lot of the Marlins teams in the past have done. So kudos to Mattingly, the manager, Don Mattingly, that is, for turning the team around here in the last week. The Reds are off to a very good start as they are in first place. The Cardinals have been struggling. I thought the Cardinals would get off to a better start considering what we talked about there at the baseball preview a couple of weeks ago. And then to finish up, you have the Dodgers, as I said, 13-3. and Giants playing pretty well at 9-6. and And the Padres, who have stubbed their toe here, not only losing the two games at the start of the series to the Dodgers, but at 10-7, and I'm sure not where they want to be right now. They would have loved to have taken two out of three against the Dodgers over the weekend, but they'll have some retribution this coming weekend as they go up the turnpike to play the Dodgers, as I said earlier. And that's pretty much what you have there with baseball. So a lot of interesting storylines, a lot of different takes and things that you could sink your teeth into, but we're still a long way to go until any, you figure 40 games is pretty much the indicator just about a quarter of the season as to where your team will be and pretty much set the tone for the rest of the year. It's not a guarantee, of course. We all know that you have teams that have their second half runs after slow starts. All you got to do is look at the 2019 Washington Nationals, 19-31, and 31, far from a postseason berth, far from any pennant races. But again, that was at the end of May, and we saw what happened there the rest of the season and them winning the World Series trophy. But... Still, 40 games is a good barometer to look at your team and see possibly if they're going to be pretenders or contenders. So that's what we have there with the baseball. All right, now I'll turn my attention to the hardwood and the association as there is a lot to dive into with this topic. And I tell you, I don't even know where to begin. You've had so much happen over the last seven days with the league, whether it's injuries, whether it's a retirement, whether it's preparing for an outcome for the verdict in Minneapolis this coming week, whether it's the playing tournament as Mark Cuban destroyed that philosophy. You also have a future Hall of Famer who has become part owner of an NBA team. Uh, Where do I begin? I'll start off with the injuries there. We'll take it on the court and then move ourselves away from that. And what took place here, especially if you're a fan of either the Brooklyn Nets, the Denver Nuggets, or the Utah Jazz, three teams that figure to be part of the championship mix here. And with the Nets, and they had a rough week too. You look back to what happened last Monday in Minneapolis where the game between the Brooklyn Nets and the T-Wolves was postponed because of what happened there, the previous weekend the situation with Dante Wright the kid that was shot 20 years old by police and you had not only the T-Wolves but also the Minnesota Wild as well as the Twins postpone their games because of that incident and it just happened to fall on the week of this trial with Derek Chauvin which I'll get to in a little bit but with the game between the Nets and the Wolves postponed to Tuesday and then you had Kevin Durant play in that game 
was effective. They ended up winning the game. Kyrie Irving sat out due to personal reasons, which I discussed last week. And then you had the game on Wednesday between Brooklyn and Philadelphia, which was a pivotal game considering both teams have played each other to a 1-1 split. And this was going to be the tiebreaker as to who is going to be at the top of the Eastern Conference come the end of the season. And understood that James Harden is out with a hamstring. And understood that Blake Griffin was also out. And then unfortunately, word came down that LaMarcus Aldridge, there's a retirement, who had an irregular heartbeat in the game against the Lakers the previous Saturday, had to abruptly call it a career for him. 15 years in the league, seven-time All-Star. We understand he was a big player in the league. Good player, but not a Hall of Famer by any stretch. But he's a guy that was brought in for reinforcements and he had to bow out and step down for health reasons, which is 1,000% understood. But you had Kyrie come back. KD was not going to play in the back-to-back. And then the Nets lose to the Sixers to where they have right now, I believe, a game and a half lead in the Eastern Conference. Or I believe they're tied. No, they're not tied in the loss column. My apologies. The Sixers have a two-game edge in the loss column, a game and a half back. And that could be immense for the Sixers, who could certainly use the home court. Now, you would think that the home court would bode well more for Philadelphia than it would be for Brooklyn, only because they're the younger team. They haven't had home court throughout the postseason. And we understand the fans are slowly but surely trickling in, but be it for a young team, even with a veteran coach and Doc Rivers, that it would be a benefit for the Sixers to have that home court over the Brooklyn Nets, who, as we all know, it's a team of mercenaries. And despite the fact that they're good and obviously above average and very good, but they're untested. And even with the trio of Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and James Harden, they've only played seven games together since the trade for Harden was brought from Houston to Brooklyn. So when are these guys going to be on the same page or on the floor at the same time? We do not know. We're not going to probably even find that out until we get closer to the end of the regular season. But you cannot be happy. Forget about ESPN and the whole resting players as you've seen. I don't know if you paid attention, but you had the Spurs who are pretty much the OGs of this. Dating back to the Tony Parker, Manu Ginobili, Tim Duncan days of Greg Popovich where his team was just fined $25,000 for resting players. I think they call it a resting player policy, if you could believe that. As well as the Toronto Raptors, they also got fined here over the last couple of days. But for, and we could get into that, but the bottom line and the bigger point is, is that with the injuries and with the lack of participation with these players and playing in big games, and you just got to wonder whether or not Brooklyn, for all their physical attributes and all of their scoring prowess, is that going to be enough when all these players, whether it's two of the guys on the floor or all three of the guys on the floor, are going to be able to put their hands together and join and make it as Eastern Conference champions to fight for an NBA championship? Because we all know the reason why all these players are here together is just for that one thing. And that's to win it all or bust. And you got to wonder, with Steve Nash, you also got to throw him in the mix too. There's some blame to go around with him as a young coach. And he's pretty much going to have to submit to his players. He's not going to crack down and not going to say, hey, Kevin, you got to be in the lineup today. Even if you give me 12 minutes. 
or Kyrie, come on, enough. Let's get it together. Or how about the GM, Sean Marks, putting his foot down? So we all know this is about the postseason, people. The regular season isn't what it's about in the NBA, although that game this past Wednesday night could be an indicator of things to come if the Sixers do happen to own the top spot in the East and as far as a seven-game series with a conference final between those two teams, that's not to say the Nets can't go in there and win a game five or even a game seven to go to a, an NBA final. But something just to keep an eye on, if the Sixers do happen to clinch a game seven at home, you're going to think back to that game and whether or not KD could have at least given it a little bit of an effort despite him nursing these injuries. And speaking of which, He had the injury yesterday where he collided with Trevor Ariza, a left thigh contusion. He's going to be looked at today. And the one thing, if you're a Net fan, even just Kevin Durant, it seems if you breathe on the guy, he's going to be hurt. And I like Durant. We all know that when he is 100% healthy, to me, he's the second best player in the league. And you have to wonder, forget about the Achilles for now. We know that that's been a big issue for him dating back to his days at Golden State in that NBA final against Toronto, but now with the hamstring that he suffered, that he was out for two months, now you have this contusion here, or Charlie Horse, whatever you want to call it, you got to wonder whether or not he's going to be made to play come May, June, and July by hella high water to try to get that elusive championship. Because right now, it looks like if he takes a step the wrong way, or if he bumps into somebody, the guy's going to be on the shelf. And that does not look good if you're the Brooklyn Nets because to me, you could be without Kyrie. You could even be without James Harden. But the gigantic piece of that puzzle is number seven on the Brooklyn Nets. Because I think you could have Kyrie and KD play off of one another and even Harden and Kevin Durant. But I think without Durant, can the Brooklyn Nets win a title with just Kyrie and James Harden? Carrying the mail? I'm not going to sit here and say they can't, but I like my chances a hell of a lot better if I have Kevin Durant in the lineup. And to me, he's the guy, to use the Reggie Jackson quote, is the straw that stirs the drink. So something to keep an eye on there. Now, the other just awful injury that you saw there last week was Jamal Murray crumpling down to the floor against Golden State in the final minutes I believe there was, what, about 50 seconds to go, and it was a non-contact injury. ACL, who knows what his status is going to be for next year, considering here we are in April, and usually ACL injuries are going to take you anywhere between six to nine months just to rehab it and recovery. But just a, no pun intended, just a tough break. Denver, you would think that their title hopes, even though they're fourth in the Western Conference, but if they were planning to make a deep postseason run that they did last year in the bubble, looks like that may not be the case to not have him in the lineup. is just, sadly, when you lose a guy like that, he's irreplaceable. And just tough for the Nuggets. And the Utah Jazz are holding their collective breaths because with Donovan Mitchell spraining an ankle, MRI, no structural damage. They certainly dodged a missile there knowing that with the way their season has gone and how the Jazz have played this year, to lose him, he'd be the one guy. I understand you got LeBron, AD, I get that. But for a team that when you think about it, at the beginning of the year, you thought would be so far from the championship aspiration. You figured they'd be somewhere hovering in the 4-5 range or you figured they'd make a leap but not to this extent. 
And here they are without their best player, but thankfully not an extended period of time. You would think he'd be back here over the course of the next couple of weeks to close out the regular season and then be primed and ready to go into the postseason. So he's another guy you got to look out for. So between the injuries of this past week of key players, the LaMarcus Aldridge retirement, like I mentioned, you may have AD coming back at the end of this week where LeBron will follow up the following week. So that'll be a tremendous boost for the Lakers. And then you also have a situation where in the East, at the bottom rung of the conference, Zach Levine of the Bulls out in protocol as the Bulls are trying to fight their way for a 7-10 to 10 scenario where they could play themselves into the postseason. Who knows how long he'll be out, but that's one guy that we got to keep an eye out for if the Bulls are planning to make any moves and we'll get into the playoff scenarios in a minute. And speaking of playing scenarios, I know last week you had the comments made by Luka Doncic when he said that he doesn't see the point of this playing tournament. He says you're either one of the top eight teams and you make it to the postseason or that's it. He feels as if if you're a seven or eight seed and you play the required games in order to make it to being one of the top eight. And if you don't make it, let's say if you're an eight seed and you happen to lose your game against the seven seed so where the seven is entrenched, but then you now have to play the winner of the nine, 10 seed and then you lose that. Then you're out of the postseason. He says that it doesn't make any sense to him. Doesn't see the point of having that. You should just have your top eight and that's it. And even Mark Cuban, his owner, came out and stated that the tournament would be an enormous mistake because of pretty much everything what Luca said. And of course, he's going to back his player with that comment. And there is a little bit of truth to that. You'd rather see one through eight and that's it. But with a condensed schedule with having the opportunity of young upstart type teams to make it to the postseason, in particular the New Orleans Pelicans, where right now they are not probably going to be anywhere near the ninth or 10th seed in the Western Conference. But that's the reason why they've done this. But hopefully this is a one-year deal. They'll scrap it and that's that because it should be one through eight. We shouldn't have to get gimmicky with playing tournaments and having the seven and eight play one another and then the nine and 10. Uh, To me, it's a waste of time, but I could see why they're doing it just to add a little bit more drama. And maybe some more theater to some of the other teams, like I mentioned, the New Orleans or some of the younger teams that could possibly make it in. Or even a team like the Golden State Warriors, who I think right now they're on the outside looking in as we look through the standings. And I'll go through that right now. Yeah, Golden State right now is the ninth seed. They're two games behind the Memphis Grizzlies in the West. So that's the reason why they're having this. Because without having Golden State and even San Antonio right now is the 10th seed in the Western Conference... I mean, is this going to be Golden State and San Antonio of a few years back when they played in a Western Conference Final? No, but there are two teams that have history. There are two teams that have won championships over the years. There are two teams that the NBA fan or even the casual sports fan may look at because they know of those two teams and may see how they play against one another in an effort to move on to play the winner or in this case, the loser of the 7-8 game. And... That's what the NBA is trying to do here. That's not to say you have to agree with it or like it, but that's what it is. And then in the East, as we look through that, and we talked about this last week, you want to be four, five, and six. You don't want to be seven and eight for the scenario I just painted. Now, the Celtics and Knicks have gone on to 
torrid streaks here to where they both won six in a row. They've now catapulted themselves to the five and six seed where Miami and Charlotte have taken the steps back. But again, those teams right there between even the Hawks, because the Celtics right now are tied with the Hawks, but the Hawks have the advantage. 31 and 26, the Knicks are 31 and 27, and then Miami and Charlotte are 29 and 28. All those teams are separated by two and a half games, so anything could change as the weeks go on. And then you have Indiana, who's two games behind the eight seed, Toronto as the 10 seed right now, but they're tied with Chicago and Washington for that final 10 seed. So that's going to be an interesting finish, but again, will they be sacrificial lambs to? whomever they play in the first round, provided that they make it as one of the top eight teams in the Eastern Conference, remains to be seen. But this is why the NBA is doing this. Now, do I like it? Personally, I could do away with it. I guess it's great for sports talk fodder. It's great to get into. It's great to kind of look at these scenarios and try to get some sort of juicy storyline, like I mentioned before with Golden State and San Antonio. But if they're going to be an A seed and they're going to play against the Utah Jazz, do they have a shot to win that series? I think they do because Utah, as we've said time after time, they're unproven to be that top team in the West. So let me see come the postseason whether or not they could dispose of these lesser teams. And in this case, a team that actually has some championship pedigree, both in Golden State and San Antonio. And even the Wizards, let's say they get the 10 seed and they beat the nine and then they beat the seven, eight. So they're their eighth seed. Do you think they're going to beat the Sixers in the first round? I don't care if Westbrook has seven triple doubles or four triple doubles in the four games. They're probably going to get swept or maybe losing five. So, yes, it may look good on the surface, but at the end of the day, eh, I'd rather leave it than take it. All right, now I got two quickies before I get to what's going on in Minneapolis. The first one being, speaking of the Jazz, Dwayne Wade has become part owner of the Utah Jazz because over, I guess, the last year or so, he's formed a relationship with the new hotshot owner, Ryan Smith. I believe he's 41 years old, one of the youngest owners, if not the youngest owner in the NBA. And I guess in meeting Dwayne Wade, he probably had a conversation with him knowing that there is a minority stake and that he's able to, if he wanted it, that he could take it. And even if you're Dwayne Wade, as we all know, he's Mr. Miami, he's Wade County, he's a heat lifer, but if an opportunity like this comes up, you know you have to take it, and you have a young team, a team that's on the come up, a team that could make a long postseason run here to have his know-how, his experience, his pedigree, I'm sure is going to be a huge lift for an organization that is looking for an NBA championship. As we know, back in the 90s, Stockton Malone, they weren't able to seal the deal against the Bulls. And Wade, he can only do but so much on the sidelines. Understood. But I'm sure he's going to be a wealth of knowledge and a fountain for a lot of these players looking for any tidbit, any anecdote, any iota of what Dwayne Wade has experienced in the league. And it's definitely more of a boon than not. So let's see what Dwayne Wade and his presence will do for a young Jazz team. Also, on the night that Jamal Murray hurt himself against Golden State, Steph Curry, with 10 three-pointers and scoring 53 points in the process, became the all-time scoring leader in Warriors history, eclipsing 
Wilt Chamberlain's, what was it, 17,000 some odd points. So a lot of people are going to look at that as Steph being the greatest warrior of all time. Now, mind you, Wilt was with the Warriors before they were the Sixers. They were the Philadelphia Warriors. So before people start to think that, well, wait a minute. Wilt Chamberlain never played for Golden State. No, 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 no. In the time that he was with Philadelphia, they were known as the Warriors before they moved over to San Francisco and then from San Francisco to Golden State on the other side of the bridge, which now they're back in San Francisco. But for Steph to reach that lofty number in the franchise's history or in the Warriors' history, obviously he was humbled yet excited to pass the immortal Will Chamberlain. So that's another note there to put on his mantle, another milestone for him. And now the segue of the possibility and the potential of what could take place in Minneapolis this coming week as the jury is going to deliberate on a verdict for the police officer, Derek Chauvin, and we all know the scenario there with George Floyd last May. But on the heels of what took place, and I mentioned earlier with the police officer and the 20-year-old young man, Dante Wright, who was shot and killed because the officer thought she had the taser as opposed to a gun. But not getting into all that, the bottom line is the effect that this is going to have, not only just in the sports world, but just in this country as a whole. And with the sports world, you know that if the verdict comes across that he is not guilty on second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and I believe second-degree manslaughter, uh, this nation is going to go in an uproar. But as far as the players, whether it's the NBA, and you know you're going to have players sit out, as you had in Major League Baseball last Monday, where Aaron Hicks sat out against Toronto on Monday night, and you know that there are going to be some players in the Major League Baseball that are going to either take a knee or sit out. There are going to be players in the NBA, no doubt, that are going to be on hiatus. And you would think maybe even the entire league for a couple of days if this verdict comes out to be not guilty. Now, you don't have to worry about the NFL, of course. Who knows if you're going to have a smattering of people in the NHL. That remains to be seen. But when you look at sports, and I've said this before and I'll say this again, if the sports fan is going to be irritated that if this verdict comes out to be not guilty and they're going to see players on knees, whether it's on the sideline, whether it's on the first base or third base line, outside of a dugout, on the court, on the ice, suck it up. This is the country and this is the world we live in in 2021. This great country is not so great when we have these incidents happening over and over and over and over again. If there's finally some justice, then maybe you won't have players going down on one knee or you won't have players sitting out games. Maybe, just maybe, this could be the one time that the narrative could be changed. So if your sporting event gets interrupted by that or if you can't differentiate the racial and social divide that goes on between the African-American community and the police force, and you're tired of seeing this message, then find something else to watch. Find something else to do. Because guess what? It's not going away. Me, it doesn't bother me. I understand that you're there to watch a game, and even if a player took a knee in the seventh inning during the singing of God Bless America, so be it. 
So for 30 seconds, what? That's going to ruin your whole sports night? Or that's going to ruin your evening to the point where you have to change the channel? Uh, Give me a break. I understand sports is an escape. I understand sports is a respite from your 9 to 5, from coronavirus, from everything that's happening. But you know what? Just focus on the game. It's only two minutes. It's not like the player is going to sit on first base or kneel on first base while the play is being made or the ball's hit the shortstop and the guy's kneeling at first base. You don't have to worry about that. Or if the NBA decides at the start of the game they want to take a knee for the first, whatever, eight seconds of the game or 24. If they did it for Kobe, they did it for, well, it doesn't matter. So what? Give it a couple of minutes and move on. I just hate to see that What's really happening and what's going on in this country is going to affect two minutes of your viewing pleasure because you're tired of seeing the same old, same old, especially over the last year. Well, maybe if there's some significant change in what's going on, especially with our justice system, we wouldn't have to be going through this. But you know what? Until then, like I said before, and I'll say it now, suck it up. And lastly on this, and I don't want to be right on this, and I hope I'm completely wrong, but I feel deep in my gut that we're going to have a repeat of what happened 29 years ago. And if you're wondering, Jay Reels, what the hell are you talking about? There's a documentary, I believe it's on Netflix or Hulu. I think it's Netflix. It's called LA 92. All I would say is just watch that. And especially if you're at least over 40. I think everybody should watch it. I don't care if you're 15 years old. You should watch that as well. But if you're over 40, 29 years ago, especially at the end of this month, the 29th, was the verdict of the Rodney King incident. And what's great about this documentary is that there's no narration. It's told in real time. And it's all the news clips. It's all the court clips, the video, the aftermath, whether it's taken by the news home video, etc. And it was probably the most riveting documentary I've ever seen in my life. We saw and remembered what happened in LA being burned down and the stores and the neighborhoods. And of course, everybody's going to look at that and be like, well, here they go looting and whatever. Part of it is, is that people are just tired. And right, does it mean that they have to go destruct property and things of that nature? Does that make it right? I understand it doesn't. And I'm not condoning that in any way, shape or form. But if you watch the documentary and you see what happens or watch what happens there, I think you may have a similar case here where who knows what Minneapolis is going to look like. And not only that, what other parts of the country are going to look like. Because guess what? People are fed up. People are tired. And that was just LA 29 years ago. You would think that we would have evolved from that, but we haven't. We're pretty much in the same situation when it comes to everything that's happening and everything that I just explained 29 years ago to where we are today. Nothing's improved. In fact, you could say we've even gone backwards. But I'll close out on this. I hope it's not the case where if he's not guilty that the country goes up in flames. I hope that cities don't burn down to the ground. I hope that people can be as level-headed as possible. But I tell you, this could get ugly. And it's not even just with the communities 
of the inner cities is not just Minneapolis, it's the whole country. Because we're divided as it is right the second. I can't even imagine what it's going to be like if the verdict goes to the favor of Derek Chauvin. I'm saying this now, and I hope I'm wrong. But I'm saying this now because be ready, people. This is going to get ugly really quick. All right, so I'll cool off with a little bit of ice right about now as we segue into the NHL. And tonight, there's going to be one of the more historic moments, not only in the history of the NHL, but the history of sports. Because when was the last time you've seen a player in any of the four majors, basketball, baseball, football, and now hockey, have come to a point where you've seen a player play the most games in the history of the league? Now we've seen consecutive streaks with a one Cal Ripken in a streak that nobody thought would ever be broken and that was Lou Gehrig's consecutive game streak of 2,130 where Cal Ripken obliterated that and I believe it's 26-32. And in Las Vegas tonight, you're going to have a player in a one Patrick Marlowe eclipse Mr. Hockey, Gordie Howe himself, of the 1,767 game mark where he'll play in game 1768. And a lot of people thought in NHL circles that there's no way that was going to be broken. And just to put that in perspective, I'm going to just pick three players over the last generation that seemed like they played forever. And still, one came close, but two, because of how long they played, didn't even sniff Gordie Howe's record. I'll start with Marc Messier, who played until he was 43 years old. We all know Edmonton Oiler, New York Ranger. Then he played with Vancouver. And obviously, we know him well here in New York for what he did in the 1994 season, ending the drought for the New York Rangers Stanley Cup chase, beating the aforementioned Canucks there in seven games. But here was a guy who played 1,756 games until age 43. He was 11 games away from matching Gordie Howe. He fell short, and I'm sure he's probably been interviewed. Hey, did you ever think about matching Gordie Howe? And I'm sure he probably felt, ah, it was time for him to go, and that's it. That's number one. The second player on this list is Yarmir Yager, longtime Penguin. Also played on a million different teams. Played on the Rangers, played in Florida, played, but predominantly with the Penguins. Here was a guy that played until he was 45 just a couple of years ago. And played in 1,733 games. So he played two more years than Marc Messier. Or played two years after Marc Messier as far as his age goes. And still fell short of not only Gordie Howe's mark, but even Marc Messier's 1,756 games. As Yager was at 1,733. And then lastly, Chris Chelios. This guy was a defenseman who... Predominantly played for Montreal, Chicago, and Detroit throughout his career. Hall of Fame, we all know. Played to the age of 47. And he was 90 games short of Gordie Howe. So when you add that all up, you probably think to yourself, well, how in the hell did Patrick Marlowe, a guy who has had a very good career, not a Hall of Famer in my eyes, and today's not the day to pound on him whether or not, and it's not pounding on him, but to be a Hall of Famer, you got to be one of the all-time greats. And Marlowe is not that. 
despite him having an excellent career. But to add that up, and you wonder, well, how in the hell at 41 years old is Marlowe going to pass Gordie Howe? Well, consistency certainly helps. He's played in 82 games 11 times. And he's been in the league 23 years. And he's played at least 80 or more 15 times. When you have that type of longevity and you play in all those games, of course you're going to either come close, match, or top it. And that's what Marlowe's going to do tonight. And huge congratulations to him. He has 556 goals. He has, I believe, 1,100 some odd points. But when you have 1,100 points and played in 1,700 games, that's not Hall of Fame material. I'll just leave it at that because it's not about the Hall of Fame right now. It's about him achieving this milestone, which we thought we'd never see. And now I think after tonight, we probably won't see because to have a career like that and to play in all these games, the only other player off the top of my head that could probably come close would be Joe Thornton because he came in as an 18-year-old and a one-time teammate with him at San Jose. I don't know how many games I have to look and see, but Marlowe making it to the all-time games played in the NHL in its 100-plus year history, man, that is an achievement unlike any other. So congratulations to him as he'll do that tonight. And then speaking of the Canucks, they finally got a game in yesterday to where they won in overtime, beating Toronto. Toronto's hit the skids here a little bit where they had a three and a half week layoff. Who knows if they're going to make up these games? They say they want to. The NHL season is going to be extended, I believe, five days. Who knows if it's going to be enough for Vancouver to match the 56 game total after losing just a ton of games here toward the end of March. And for them to have this three week layoff to bounce back the way they did, credit to them. But they're on the outside looking in when it comes to the postseason and as we go through the standings real quick out west well we'll start with the north there with Toronto like I said they've lost four in a row to where Winnipeg has crept up a little bit and they're just four points behind them Edmonton three points behind the Jets and then you have Montreal at 47 and you figure that's where it's going to be there where Toronto's still in good shape Vancouver is 37 points they're 10 points behind and even with all the games that they missed Who knows if it's going to be enough for them to make up to even be a part of the fourth seed in the Northern Division. So we'll have to wait and see about that. But the West, Colorado and Vegas, they are now locked 64 points. Minnesota at 57 points with the Coyotes at 45. And they're going to be in a... Grudge match with the St. Louis Blues who are one point behind them and the Blues have played terribly this year. So who knows if they're going to make it into the postseason. But right now it's Colorado and Vegas out west where the Northern Division, it looks like it's going to be Toronto as your team fighting for the top. And then in the Central, as I say, week in and week out, Carolina has a very interesting week ahead. Right now they are in first place. It seems like it's either Tampa, Florida, or Carolina. Those three teams are separated by one point and Carolina certainly has a week ahead of them that is pretty much in the making for them to put some distance between Florida and Tampa in the division because they have a back-to-back against Tampa starting tonight and tomorrow and then at the end of the week, a back-to-back against the Florida Panthers. All these games are on the road but if they really want to put themselves ahead of the pack here this is their week to do it 
So we'll keep an eye on Carolina this week as they hold a slim one-point lead in the division over the Florida Panthers and two over the Tampa Bay Lightning. And then you have Nashville who will battle it out for the fourth seed in the Central with Chicago and Dallas. And then in the East, you have the Capitals, two points out of the Islanders and three points out of the Penguins. The Capitals and Islanders will revisit Again, later this week with two games at home, Thursday and Saturday in Long Island, and then a Tuesday matchup down in the nation's capital. So those are three critical games for the Islanders to win. So we'll see what happens there. Now the Bruins are surging where they've won four in a row. They're three points behind the Penguins right now. And even the Rangers have played well. They're trying to nip at their heels for that fourth seed. But with Taylor Hall... Already making a contribution in the game on Thursday against the Islanders where the Bruins swept the Islanders in back-to-back games to position themselves a lot better in the, not only just in the division, but trying to creep up there amongst the likes of the Islanders and the Penguins as well. So that's also a race to keep an eye on. And that pretty much is it for your NHL. So getting a little bit interesting here, making the turn for the last 10 to 12 games of the season. As we know, both the NBA and NHL will conclude their seasons in the middle of next month and will continue to keep pace with this fast and furious home stretch as both of these teams look to close out their seasons and get ready for a postseason. So plenty of time to chew on between now and the middle of next month. And let me wrap up here with some NFL stuff. And I'm going to start off with Julian Edelman as he's another guy who's retired. I feel like everybody's retiring here over the last week. And... With Julian Edelman, he goes into the sunset with a career that a lot of people, when you look at his status coming out of Kent State, seventh round pick, was a quarterback to become a wide receiver, special teams player, slot guy, pretty much the Wes Welker of his generation, and a guy who's had, let's face it, For someone who was an underdog like he was to walk away with three Super Bowl victories, a Super Bowl MVP, all the victories, all the accolades from someone that low in the draft, uh, you couldn't ask for a better career. And the guy was money, the guy was clutch, winning player, all of it. You cannot take that away from him. But what I can say, and this goes back to last Tuesday night, I changing the channels and I'm watching NFL Network and I see America's game and they're talking about the Patriots. I believe this is the Super Bowl against the Falcons. He made, of course, that great catch which sustained the drive and I believe that was the game-tying drive. But in the upper left-hand corner, I see Julian Edelman retirement. And for a second, I thought I said, wait, they're dedicating the America's game to Julian Edelman? Is this to commemorate his career? And the first thing I thought of, I said to myself, why are they making Julian Edelman out to be one of the great receivers of all time? And again, this isn't a knock on him. I just explained to you how much of a warrior he is, how much of a winner he is, money player, guts, everything, heart. The guy's tremendous. But does this guy belong in the same breath as Calvin Johnson? Does he belong in the same breath as Randy Moss? Does he belong in the same breath as Terrell Owens, Jerry Rice, Fred Bolitnikoff, Chris Carter? Uh, Go on down the list. He is not. Lynn Swan. And again, to make the Hall of Fame is the creme de la creme, is the greatest of great. 
And in his generation for Julian Edelman, he wasn't a top five receiver. He wasn't even a top 10 receiver. So if he doesn't fall into those two categories, how is he an all-time great and deserving of being enshrined in the Hall of Fame? Answer me that, please. And again, I don't want to hear that there's some Steeler bias because I'm going to bring up Heinz Ward. And if Julian Edelman goes into the Hall of Fame, then Heinz Ward goes in on roller skates. Because Heinz Ward has had a hell of a career and he wasn't a first round top overall pick either. Third round pick out of Georgia in 1998. So for Heinz Ward, who has two Super Bowl rings in his account, a Super Bowl MVP, and regarded as one of the great all-around wide receivers, not just for pass catching, but for blocking. Remember, he started off as a special teams player. And he's in that same mold as Julian Edelman as far as the player goes. But he was better than Julian Edelman. And I don't want to hear that, oh, well, Heinz Ward was more of a focal point in his offense early to the middle and the bulk of his career than Julian Edelman was. He was never a wideout. He was more of a slot guy. I don't want to hear it. Sorry. If you want to put him in the Hall of Fame, especially if you're in New England, all the Patriot fans there say, oh, yeah, first ballot, he's a lock, blah, blah, blah. No, 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 no. Then Hines has to go. And again, this isn't Steeler Patriot bias or, ah, you're just a Steeler fan, you hate the Patriots, whatever. No, this is just fact. Do I need to go through the numbers? Julian Edelman for his career ended with 36 touchdowns. 36! I can name a zillion other wide receivers who won't even sniff the Hall of Fame that had more touchdowns than Julian Edelman. And it's not as if he played in the league for six, seven, eight years. He played in the league for 12 years. And I understand he wasn't a focal point of his team. He had Randy Moss. He had Rob Gronkowski. He had four-time Aaron Hernandez. I hate to bring him up. There were other players that I understand they're throwing the ball over the lot. But I don't want to hear that this guy was just some afterthought on this team. He was a big part of this offense and caught 100 balls a couple of times in his career. Now, we understand his postseason prowess. Second all-time in reception, second all-time in yards to the great Jerry Rice, understood. But that doesn't make him a Hall of Famer. This guy is not one of the top wide receivers of all time. As I said, he wasn't even a top 10 wide receiver when he played. So why should he go in the Hall of Fame? Well, Heinz Ward has 1,000 catches and 12,000 receiving yards and 85 touchdown catches. And you're going to put in Julian Edelman or think he's the first ballot and not look at someone as a contemporary as Heinz Ward? Give me a break. And with the draft 10 days away, there's some rumors circulating that there may be a quarterback that could be plummeting in the draft a la Aaron Rodgers of the 2005 NFL draft to where Justin Fields could be that guy that may fall out of the top 10. Looks like he may not be picked amongst the top three or four when it comes to the leaderboards at the top of the draft. We know that Jacksonville is going to take Trevor Lawrence for all intents and purposes. The Jets are going to take the BYU quarterback, Zach Wilson. After that, it's looking as if San Francisco may take either Mac Jones out of Alabama or the kid Trey Lance from North Dakota State. And then from there, you have your four, five, and six picks, which are Atlanta, Cincinnati, and I believe Detroit. 
which you know those three teams aren't going to pick a quarterback because Atlanta, you think they're going to stick with Matt Ryan, although they may look at Justin Fields as the heir apparent. Remains to be seen. Remember, Atlanta's looking to trade their pick. They've made it known that they're willing to trade the number four pick overall, and that could change because somebody could pick Fields there if a team is looking to move up in the draft. But with the scenario of four, five, and six, and a matter of fact, the sixth team is the Dolphins because they moved up, they traded with the Eagles, and the Dolphins aren't going to take a quarterback. They're not going to take Fields. So with Atlanta, Cincinnati, you know they're probably going to draft an offensive lineman, and then Miami, and I believe the seventh pick is the Lions, who I don't think they're going to draft a quarterback either because remember, they just got Goff. So you may look at a scenario where Justin Fields could fall either to the bottom of the top 10 or even out of the top 10. So something to keep in mind there. I know Fields had a very up and down end of the season where he had a terrible game in the Big Ten Championship to Northwestern of all teams. And then he had the great performance in the semifinal game against Clemson and an eh, so-so game against Alabama in the championship. But something to keep an eye on 10 days away. I know all the draft heads are going to get crazy here. And to me, I could care less. Just wake me up at 8 o'clock on Thursday night and I'll be fully tuned as to what's happening there. But other than that, Jadavian Clowney signs with the Browns one year, up to $10 million. I believe the base is $8 million. Now we've seen this script before. You're looking at the dynamic duo of Clowney and Miles Garrett. We saw that in Houston with Clowney and J.J. Watt. Could this be a 2.0 version of that? We'll see. But Clowney, as we all know, he's hot and cold. Uh, I can't trust him as far as I can throw him. But that's a risk they're willing to take. One year only. So we'll see what's up with Clowney. Speaking of risks, Alden Smith, who signed with the Cowboys after that time off between his early part of his career with San Francisco and Oakland, he signs a one-year deal with Seattle. Cordero Patterson signs one year with Atlanta. He seems like he bounces around from team to team every year as a return specialist and a third wide receiver. James Conner signs with Arizona for one year to be a part of their backfield as they stack their offense so we'll see what the Steelers do. And he's, that's going to be interesting to see if they're going to draft a running back in the first round. But we'll talk more about that next week. And then you had the, the scenario of Aaron Donald. I'm not going to get into that. It looks like he's going to not be accused of anything. In fact, the attorney for the person who was involved, the Vincent Spriggs, offered an apology to Donald, pretty much saying that he was not accused or mistook as an attacker for Aaron Donald, but it was somebody else. So that's going to be washed away. And lastly, if you already hated Alabama like I do, they've got a commitment from an offensive lineman that they had their eye on from the eighth grade. And the kid's name is Jaheim Otis. That he attended a summer camp on the campus of the University of Alabama when at the time, he was 6'4 and 284 pounds. And he ran a 4.740. And that's what I read. I don't know if he's 6'4 now. I would think he's probably 6'4, 284. And he's in high school. But the rich get richer. And that's why Alabama is the football factory that it is. I'm sick and tired of them. But to read that story that they had there, and this happens in the NBA too, where the AAU leagues, the eighth graders, I mean, kids that are in third grade. They're monitoring. So imagine here in football, they're in eighth grade looking at a future offensive lineman. So if you want to be more sick to your stomach about Alabama football, well, now they're going to have this other stud that's going to be on their team who's committed to Alabama. And I believe that'd be for next year because I believe he's going to be a senior in high school this upcoming year. So 
Just thought I'd put that out there. But let's close it out here with my hero and zero of the week. My hero of the week, and speaking of retirements, why not? Jay Bruce, the former Yankee, also longtime Red, played with the Mets, Seattle, Philadelphia, Cleveland, etc. Made his announcement yesterday before the game against the Tampa Bay Rays and put his retirement papers, talked to his manager Aaron Boone there on Friday and said that Sunday was going to be his last day. He did start eight games this year, did hit a home run, was batting 118, only started two of the last seven games. He felt that he wasn't able to do it at this level anymore and that it was just unacceptable for him to even ride out the rest of this year. I know he probably wasn't owed a lot of money this year. I believe maybe his salary was $2 million, but he felt it was time to walk away. And kudos to him. He didn't hang on for the paycheck. He didn't hang on just to try to chase a ring. And probably, for all intents and purposes, if he would have continued to produce this way, he probably would have been designated for assignment or sent to the alternate site. So, Jay Bruce, great career. Kudos to you, my man. You're my hero of the week. And my zero of the week, let's go back to Friday night, my friends, where Yankee fans were throwing baseballs and other objects onto the field during an 8-2 loss there late in the game Friday night. Mind you, this is before they got swept by the Rays. But for those idiots that are out there, and it was about 36 people, considering it was a wet, rainy, cold night in the Bronx, for them to throw these objects and baseballs, where they got them from, who the hell knows? Those aren't real fans, A. Because why are you going to do that? You could be upset. You could be frustrated. You could be angry. You could boo for all I care. But to throw objects onto the field and for you to just interrupt the game to where they had to be delayed and halted and all that, it's April 16th. What the hell are you doing throwing stuff on the field? They're probably drunk and idiots, whatever. But you know what? Those Yankee fans, I'm not going to even give them more than what they already have to, but this is just adding a little bit of uh, icing to the tombstone here, even though it is April 19th, and watch the Yankees reel off 10 straight after this. But those Yankee fans are my zero of the week. So that will do it. Episode 190 in the books. As always, people, thank you so much for downloading and listening to what it is I have to say about what goes on in the world of sports. And as I say each and every week, as well as the very top, if you've heard, as I'm sure you did, To help promote the growth and expansion of the podcast, I would implore you to please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, Overcast, Amazon Music. All that's going to do is increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there and as an independent entity that I am. I'm the one that runs this shit, people. I don't have production assistance or a team here. This is all on yours truly. So whatever that you could do on your end just to give me four or five stars, put a little blurb in there to say that Jay Reels knows what he's talking about, he's funny, he's credible, whatever, I would sincerely and greatly appreciate that. So if you could do that, please do so. Also, if you want to hit me up on any of my social media accounts with a DM with questions, comments, criticism, or praise, or even send me an email, you could do so on Instagram, Jay Reels, or the Jay Reels Podcast, which is Strictly Sports. Twitter, JReels1, just a number. Facebook, the JReels Podcast fan page. And the email is the JReels Podcast at gmail.com. Please, whatever you want to send, shoot it my way. I'll be sure to follow up with you. And then lastly, if you want to contribute to this endeavor of mine, the podcast that is the JReels Podcast, you could do so on my Patreon page, which is P as in Paul, A T as in Tom, R E O N as in Nancy. So that would be 
www.patreon.com slash the J Reels podcast. Whatever it is that you want to contribute, I would sincerely and greatly appreciate it from the bottom of my heart, which would go to the website, production, equipment, etc. Because whether you do or do not know, it's in the blood people, it's in my DNA to talk sports, to share my opinions, my analysis, my everything that happens. Whether it's on the world of the diamond, the ice, the gridiron, the hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Center, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. Until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>